sacred rituals, and a cosmic community to enchant your mystical life. This podcast feels like soulful conversations by the fire and under the desert stars, as if you are hanging with your best friends, talking about purpose, the cosmos, and the divine journey we are all on. My name is Anna Alic, and this is the Topanga Moon Podcast. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back if you've been listening for a while. I'm so excited for you to just be joining me on this journey every week and also to listen to this really, really beautiful special episode. I'm so excited. I will get into it in a moment. But welcome if you are new to the podcast. I'm so happy you're here. And happy new moon. It was the new moon last night, if you're listening to this on the Wednesday that it came out. It was the new moon in Sagittarius. It was a really beautiful, uplifting, loving, positive, adventurous, and truthful new moon. And the energy was just so beautiful. So I hope you enjoyed that new moon. And Tonight I am going to be doing a new, new new moon party in Hamilton. It'll be my first time in Hamilton. I'm really excited for that. And I will tell you about that on next week's podcast, how that all goes. But I know it's going to be a really beautiful evening. So what's been going on? Um, this whole week, it's kind of been up and down for me. I know that last week... Just like internally, I was feeling a lot of different emotions and, you know, I think it had something to do with it being the Mercury retrograde and just the energetic shifts that were happening specifically for me, maybe for you as well, but I know that I was really feeling off at times, but I was just honoring it and I was allowing it to happen and to move through it. There was a lot of moments of self-doubt, I would say, and I'm learning that that's all a part of this entrepreneurial journey that I'm now on. And it happens, you know, when you're creating things and you're kind of working from home, um, you're not in an office with people anymore or out in the workplace. You're kind of just creating on your own and you get into this, you know, sometimes this uh, dance of, of self-doubt and it's just the fears. And I really think looking back on it, that it was just moments of moving through fear and what that felt like and arriving to new places and trying new things. And that's always going to be this, these moments of being a little bit uncomfortable, but I have really strong, um, practices uh, that are really healing and beautiful, a lot of meditation, a lot of spiritual work. I did a dream interpretation course last week that was so beautiful and profound and it's actually going to be, I have Holly Emerson on next week of the podcast and she is a dream oracle. So I'm going to be bringing the dream oracle conversation to you, to this community 
so exciting. Um, so yeah, there was a, a lot of shifts and just moving through the energies. And I'm so curious if anyone else was feeling that for that week. Let me know. Send me an email. Send me a message. I always love to hear what everyone's going through and if you're also feeling the different energetics at the time. And I know that this is a really powerful time in our collective consciousness. There's a lot of energy coming into our planet and we're feeling that we're shifting into these more, you know, authentic versions of ourselves. So there is going to be that, you know, little moments of um, what Lacey Phillips calls the magic dark. And I also like to call that, that it's like the in-between. It's like this beautiful space of the in-between when you're creating your dreams, when you're working towards beautiful experiences that you want to have. But right now you're in the transition of that. You're in moments of growth. You're in moments of expansion or moments of integration, integrating all this new energy that is coming in, coming through you or you're channeling messages and Sometimes I can feel um, a little too much, but this week is feeling really beautiful. This new moon energy has been so inspiring for me, and I am back on this um, running routine. I love running. Running is totally a part of my my own mental clarity and my favorite my favorite thing to do working out is running. And it's really this opportunity for me to feel connected to nature. I'm always running outside and I actually love running in the winter. There's this stillness and there's this beauty and appreciation that I have when I'm running in the forest and there's snow on the ground and everything is really quiet and really beautiful and glistening and I can have this deeper reverence for this time of the year, which usually I'm not that excited about I mean let's be real I always want to be living in the desert and in that sunshine and beautiful desert landscape but if I am you know I mean I've I've grew up in Canada so winters are my norm and this is my way of feeling connected to the outdoors and it's a beautiful thing so I'm getting back into my running routine so I'm really happy about that so today on the podcast, I have my friend Pam Wong. It's really funny because we almost met for the first time in Sedona, Arizona. And Sedona, if you've been there, you know it's this energetic portal. It's this beautiful, magical, mystical place where things just happen out of nowhere and you can manifest easily and the energies are so wonderful and there's just so much spiritual beautiful work that's happening in Sedona and you really can only experience it if you're there and if you, when you go there but yes me and Pam almost met in Sedona we were there at the same time and it was through a series of events but we didn't and it's interesting when you think about when you meet people and and the specific timing of the meeting of people, and I really think that this time was the perfect alignment. I really think this is when our vibrations were aligning and when we could become friends and it sparked this whole beautiful conversation that you're going to hear today. And this 
episode with her, this interview is just so special and sacred to me. I love learning about people so much. I love having these conversations. It's one of my favorite things. I mean, I've been hosting in some sort of capacity for as long as I can remember. So getting to know people, asking people questions, having these conversations is really something that I get so excited about. And today's conversation is something that intrigues me so much. And I know it's going to be a really beautiful conversation for you. It's all about Pam's work. She spends a lot of her time now in Nunavut working with the communities um, and tracking. She did a lot of work with um, tracking polar bears and doing research in that space. I'll let you, I'll let her describe all of her work for you because it's a really beautiful, interesting journey. Um, She did her PhD in this work. Uh, She originally studied biology and science and she has just really, you know, allowed herself to go on this journey. And throughout this interview, you're really going to hear how her path was kind of already laid out for her. There was it was it's not it's so undeniable that this is her life's purpose and her life's work and to be able to hear her stories um how she even got into this journey and working up in Nunavut and working in the communities and all the research that she's doing um and then she even spent some time in New Guinea and just that being a conduit to her knowing that, I mean, you'll hear the whole story and I really want you to hear from her um, conversations because it's such an exciting story for you to listen to. But I feel so honored and privileged that we all get to hear this story because I don't think that we get to hear these stories that often, especially because I keep on referring to Pam in this interview as the bridge between, you know, these different communities and the work that she does in her life in Toronto and then going up north to Nunavut. And it's really this idea of these sacred lands, sacred communities, and the sacredness around all of it and nature and just the innate way that, you know, communities and and people work within uh, nature and that connection, that oneness, um, and just this beautiful experience that you can have when you step into this, you know, different community that you're not from and really learn from the people go there with a, you know, a a deep sense of just curiosity and understanding. And it's such a beautiful story for you to hear because it really is, there's this whole theme of like, we get we get sent these messages throughout our lives to keep putting us back on a specific path and you can hear these this incredible magical journey that she's been on where she was reminded time and time again that her work up north and on that land and um, in this capacity is really her journey and part of her soul's mission and she, you know, learned that through, we talk about ayahuasca ceremonies. We even talk about in the beginning, 
uh, her journey in Costa Rica recently and my connection to Costa Rica and we traveled to the same place, Nosara. It's just such a cool conversation and I'm just so grateful that I get to have these intimate and beautiful conversations with people who are living such, you know, unique lives and really life on purpose and with purpose. And it reminds me that this, you know, medium and this work is part of my soul's purpose. And that was a big, you know, reminder that I was given within this conversation because I keep going back to my curiosity of people and these stories and how I can be a storyteller and a translator and use my gifts in communication to express these stories and share these stories. And it always goes back to stories, whether it's writing or uh, hosting the podcast. And I've hosted other things in the past, but it's this whole journey for me. So I'm just so excited for us to dive into this episode. And I think throughout this conversation, I think you're going to start to get little pings and ideas of what your journey might be and the the things that are the breadcrumbs and the signs along the way for you to be experiencing and working in your purpose as well. So this uh this episode is just I mean I'm I'm just talking too much now. I think you should just listen to the whole conversation. I'm so honored and thank you for listening and this is my conversation with Pam. All right. Hello. We're back on the Topanga Moon podcast, and I'm so excited because I'm here with my new friend, Pam Wong. She's an amazing person with an incredible story and incredible work, and I can't wait for you to hear everything about her and what she does. So thank you. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Amazing. Um, So we were just talking a little bit about your recent trip, you were just in Costa Rica and I was there a couple years ago and we were in the same place. We were in Nosara. Mm. So when I reflect back on Nosara, I mean, just my experience of it, I really feel like it was a place or is a place that brought out lessons on relationship. And Mm. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like other places that I've been in, in Costa Rica. Like there are a lot of powerful places in Costa Rica, but I found this place in particular was yeah. extra, like, whatever you showed up with and, and what you're working through, like, we're going to move through this now and quickly so yeah. that you can, you know, move on to the next thing. Yeah. I felt the same way mm-hmm. when I was there. There was, I had the wildest journey because we did this road trip through, um, you know, a big part of Costa Rica. And, and when we got to Nosara, we already went, me and my friend who did this trek. And it was like, by the end of it, we were like, wow, we want, we went through so much together because we had to navigate. We got lost so many times. Like we almost got kidnapped once, which is such a crazy story. I haven't even like discussed the story, but we got out of that. Um, then we stayed in this like mansion kind of by accident through this like random Airbnb link that we couldn't believe that we got this like incredible house. This was just right after we got almost kidnapped. Like, 
And then there was this one, when we got to know Sara, we were like, wow, okay, this is when like we went through so much. We went through this like journey. Um, we kind of like really got through a lot of dangerous situations, but then also at the same time, seeing the beauty of the people in the community that really helped us. Like it was just like the everyday people that we met that helped us out through all of these intense situations. Cause you really had to rely on that. Like we couldn't rely on our technology or, or anything that we knew. We had to rely on the people that were around us and they were so warm and so loving and so helpful that that was like our big lesson of just like the people that made up the place were just so beautiful and we saw that and then when we got to know Sara we're like this is where we're gonna relax you know this is where everyone's like doing yoga and surfing and all this kind of stuff and we didn't take our car out one day and I was like I was recording the whole time because I was making like a little mini documentary and um so I had we had all this like gear with us and we were just like walking around and just like enjoying the day and then of course it was this uh, we were like far from our rental, but it was like this torrential downpour. And if like you were there during kind of like the rainy season and at that time, like after whatever, 5 p.m., it's just raining so hard for hours. And we were at this like bus stop and we we're like, we can't get back to our place without destroying all of our you know, if it, was, if it was just us and our clothes, it wouldn't matter. We would have just, like, walked back. But we were, like, we had all this, like, fancy camera stuff. And we're, like, we, we're gonna, it's going to be ruined if we try to, like, walk back. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we going to do? We have – there's no cabs. Like, this is a dirt road. Like, there's nothing we need to do. And it was a moment where we had to, like, use our just instincts and go with it. And I was, like, we're going to hitchhike. and I was like that was my plan I was like we're gonna hitchhike so she was like okay we're like underneath this like little bus stop and I I don't even know how to like even describe where we were staying to it was crazy so we see this guy driving in a golf cart like a covered (laughs) golf cart and I waved him down and he was like so nice. He was just like waving back to us and he thought that we were just like saying hello. And I was like, no, no, no. And then I went and I was like, we need your help. And I was like, we can't get back to our place or whatever. And he's like, hop on in. And he told us his whole story about how he moved his whole family um, from the States over to start to like learn Spanish. They really want to learn Spanish for the year. So they decided to like move their whole family and like live in Costa Rica, live this kind of like nomadic life. And he was so kind and he just, he dropped us off at our place. Like it was nothing. And he was like, bye, nice to meet ya. And it was just this amazing representation of what no sorrow was. Whereas like, no matter what you're going through, there's always like a way through it all mm. with like, just the people that are around you and like really um, just being okay with like the kindness of strangers and like there's always going to be some sort of solution. And then that, that night, like we had the best night ever because we were just like, it became this funny story where we had to like hitchhike in Costa Rica, (laughs) you know? Um, But yeah, so I I have a lot of the same feelings with, with Costa Rica. Um, Is there any other places that have felt similar to you? in terms of, like, the energy of the place? Oh, boy. I don't – I feel like Nosara was really unique. Mm. But it's funny because as you were telling your story, I remember, like, the second or third day that we went, mm-hmm. um, when we got to Nosara, <clears throat> like, my <clears> – <throat> 
<clears throat> excuse me. Um, <laughs> like my mantra was like, I'm just going to like do whatever I want. Mm. And, um, I had also like not smoked weed in a long time. Yeah. And so that's what we got into. And I just like left my phone, my wallet, everything. All I had was my bathing suit on. And we just like went to the beach and the beach, you know, transitioned to like me catching this like cliff side, which is like, I guess on the North side of Guiones. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is that cliff? I want to go see that. So I just started walking and naturally my friends followed me got to the bottom of the cliff and saw this path. So I just started climbing the wall and they were like, I guess they were climbing this wall too. And we ended up like seeing this beautiful view going to another beach, which was on the other side of this mm. um, wall basically that we climbed. And we just started walking around. And at some point, you know, we were hungry. None of us had food or our anything on us. Yeah. So we were like, we need to get back. Um, and so we just started exploring and we just kept walking and we ended up getting lost. Like we were going through property after property mm -hmm. thinking that if we walked in the general direction, we can go back home. Mm -hmm. But the truth of it was we actually had to go back over the wall that we had come from. We didn't know this. So we had walked around for like maybe 45 minutes to an hour and this truck, this guy, this Venezuelan man yeah. pulled over and he was just like, you guys are lost. Like I've seen you walking around for some time now. And he was just like, hop in. And so he gave us a ride and it was really amazing for like that brief moment in the car with him, you know, asking him about where he's from and when he came to Costa Rica and he just like dropped us off and was like, all right, see you later. Like no expectation, nothing yeah. and drove off. And it was amazing because after that, we were, yeah, we were like, we have this story where we hopped into a car with yeah. a complete stranger and made it back. And it's, you know, here where we are, that's definitely something that you don't, don't do. do. Yeah. Yeah. But there just seems like a really natural thing. Like it never, it, it didn't even dawn on me that that could be dangerous, but there was something about, and even though we were in a dangerous spot before that, it was just this like instinct that I had especially with the person that you know stopped for us it was just like a knowing of like no this is okay like everyone here um especially a lot of people who came from outside of the country there you know who are really integrated into the community really just want to help you and um because they've been in the same position where they were just like the new new people and like so confused and needing direction and it was just like yeah not wanting anything from it and that's like that was always like my feeling of no Sara of like yeah like you can get into some like really crazy situations but there's always this beautiful like silver lining and like way out of it mm -hmm. it's never really going to be bad forever <laughs> yeah totally. and then there's this beautiful sunset and you're like okay I get it <laughs> but also I find it's just like maybe it's also just being in a smaller place, like not in a city when you're in like a small community, you're really like forced to rely on each other because you can't really do it alone. Yeah, so maybe you could try, but it would certainly be harder. Yeah. And so there's like this common understanding where you can just ask anyone, you know, for directions or for a quick ride and, and it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, whereas in a big city, when you're collect, you know, connected to Wi-Fi and internet, it's like you're lost you can figure it out on your own. Yeah. 
Yeah, so true. Um, so I do want to pivot a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about uh, just your cultural upbringing and the just the journey that you went on to now the career that you have. And I know that you do so many beautiful things, but I do want to get into the work that you do because I think it's so inspiring yeah. <laughs> and I want people to hear about <laughs> it. But where did it all start? Um, where did you grow up? All that kind of stuff. Oh, man. So I grew up in it's actually wild to be telling this story, if I can, like, really rewind. Um, my parents are from Hong Kong, immigrants. My grandparents are from mainland China, so there was definitely a cultural gap between the two of them. And I was born in Scarborough, which is where my parents spent, I guess, their high school and university years. Um, and then I was actually raised in Richmond Hill, which is a small... Mm-hmm. suburb outside of Toronto. Um, but when I was really young, before my sister was born, so I was like three and under, my parents used to take me to the Toronto Zoo. Mm-hmm. And they said that I had this thing that I like, I loved seeing the footprints. And I don't know if you've been to the Toronto Zoo, but mm-hmm. if you want to see like the bear cage, you'll see bear footprints on the the public path and you just follow the footprints to, to that animal. So if you want to see a giraffe or a rhino, you follow those tracks and it'll take you to where the rhino and the giraffe are. I don't know if it's still like that or if they're still there, but it was something that my parents remembered and like would joke around with me about being obsessed with, like stepping on the footprints to see these animals. Um, Fast forward, like I guess when I was younger in elementary school, I used to like I used to talk to rocks and trees and had this Mm. belief that you could talk to the seemingly inanimate world around you. (laughs) And I was raised in a Catholic school. So me and this one girl, I remember we had this secret club where we used to try to figure out the meaning behind things. We're like this, there's more like, and, and we almost instinctually knew that there was something off about it because we used to hide it. Like we hid all these notes in our desk and we knew that, or we thought that we would get in trouble if anyone had ever found them because we were like onto something. And wow. that's just something, yeah, I completely like, I don't know what happened or when that changed because eventually, you know, I just became what I think is just a normal kid mm-hmm. with everyone else. Um, and I always had an interest in, you know, bigger questions about why we're here, but I didn't really spend too much time on them. Um, and then, yeah, I, ended up uh, pursuing a biology career. Um, When I finished high school, I had actually had a really inspiring high school teacher. And I remember the one thing, oh my gosh, okay, this is going to come back later because I'm like remembering these things. But I remember (laughs) the one thing, the one thing that triggered me was he was talking about cells. Mm -hmm. And he was like, where do cells know when to stop? Like, they just keep dividing. Like, where is their clock? How do they know that they just keep dividing and that's life? And how do they know when it stops? Yeah. Just remember this because I can't even believe that I'm making this connection right now. Um, And he was really inspiring. And that little speech, like, inspired me to to pursue biology. So I went to university and I was in biology, took biology courses, didn't really do really well. Um, I struggled because I, in part, wasn't really interested. I was very interested in partying and just being in that Mm. space and being very social and young. Um, And then towards the end of my undergraduate, um, my parents actually were really uh, pushed this on me because 
you know, they come from a Chinese background, mm-hmm. but they were like, you know, it's time to stop working at Blockbuster and HMV on your summer holidays. Like you need to find a real job that is in alignment with what you're doing in school. So I had applied to, to basically work in labs or any, um, any professors that were taking on students in my biology department. And None of them responded except for this one South African man who was working with rhinos and he was working in this lab where he was, um, it was a man singing. singing outside. It's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> I have a story about him too, actually. Um, but he, this man was the only person that had responded to my application, mm-hmm. um, my applications and he was working with rhinos and elephants in Namibia and tracking them. So he was recording oh, their tracks, their yeah. footprints, and um, using their footprints and their trails as ways to monitor the population. And he was starting this project with, he was trying to adapt the same thing with polar bears. Mm. And so when I first started working in his lab, I was just spending my summer basically writing or rewriting all of his notes in his journal and putting them into a computer. And also mapping all of the locations that he had been. Um, And then from there, he asked me to come on a trip up north for a polar bear survey. And so that was in 2008. Um, And yeah, I went up there and ended up going on this expedition, um, doing the polar bear work. And, you know, there's, there's a ton more of the work, which I can talk about, but just to fast forward a little bit, I ended up pursuing my PhD, um, looking at what they call the mitotic clock, which is the cellular clock, like why cells keep moving and dividing, um, in polar bears as a marker of aging and how polar bears age and why they age, um, so yeah, even as I'm telling the story, I'm just like, it's really interesting. I do feel like there were moments in my like younger years mm-hmm. that um, were kind of precursors to, to where I am now, yeah. even though the whole journey I would have, like there were, there have been moments in my life where I questioned whether or not I really wanted to be doing the work I was doing mm-hmm. um, because I just ended up doing it. And I was like, yeah. I didn't, I never actually actively chose <clears throat> excuse me, actively chose this. It just sort of happened. Yeah. And so I, for some time, like battled with whether or not I was just being complacent mm. and, you know, ended up going off on a different journey, which actually did lead me back to the North. So yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. I love that connection. Did you just make that connection with the cells? <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. It was that specific That's, speech that got wow. me into biology. Yeah. I just, it's so wild to, you know, get asked certain things and then you kind of have to do this retrospective and look back and, you know, then you have that like, Oh my gosh moment of, I, you know, in a way it just, it does feel like you were being led. Like there was something that you know, that speech really inspired you. So then you went off and, you know, worked towards that in a way. It was almost like you didn't, like you said, you didn't have like really a choice, but at the same time you did have a choice. Totally. Like it was all innately in you, you know? Yeah. And sometimes, and it's, it's come up in, in ceremony for me, Mm. um, where I really believe that at some point, 
myself or maybe all of us, we, we made choices. Mm. We made, we agreed to contracts, whether it was our soul or something else, a different part of us. We, we knew, and we were like, yes, this is the journey that I'm going to be on. And these are the things that I'm going to do to make that happen. And this is the work of this lifetime or maybe several lifetimes. But in case I forget, I'm also going to plant these little reminders. I love this. You know, in case I forget, there's going to be these little guides along the way. Um, and I remember there was one ceremony I did and that, that came up a lot for me. It was like, don't you see, don't you see that you had always known Mm -hmm. and that you are on that path because you had planted these seeds. Yeah. Wow. So when you were in those ceremonies, did you actually see visuals of the work that you are doing like was did you see the polar bears like did you see kind of like tangible visuals or was it just more of like a knowing um yeah I guess it depends on the ceremony um in the one (coughs) excuse me Mm -hmm. um the one that I'm referring to um I actually did see visuals and in that ceremony I had and it was it was a ceremony right before I had actually maybe a couple months before I finished my PhD where I didn't actually know if that's what I wanted to be doing. And the question I had asked was, I don't remember, but it was like some sort of guidance on where I am at and, and where I want to be. And in that I had actually seen what looked like this like multi-dimensional space and it was terrifying and really, really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looked like there were like these little alien like bug creatures that were climbing it was like I was watching this story happen, um, kind of like you're flipping pages of a book, yeah. but instead of a two-dimensional book, it was multi-dimensional. So lots yeah. of pages, but in this really complex shape and form. Yeah. But it was almost as if you, I was flipping through pages and on the crease or the outside edges of each page, there were like these weird, creepy, crawly, insect-looking alien things yeah. that were looking at the page and they were my guides. They were like these things that had like looked on the outside of my story and had always been watching and made sure that it happened. Um, and within the context of ceremony and just how I view um, being in that space, at the end of the day, all of it is you. All of it is me. It's all this one mm-hmm. thing. And so, you know, I can call them alien insects, multidimensional, higher alien life forms, but mm-hmm. ultimately they are also me. And they were yeah. also created by me because we were all part of this same weird Yeah, it's thing. The, the oneness. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy that you just said multidimension because today the podcast that I recorded was this multidimensional about manifesting, but in the multidimensional space, awesome. which is so <laughs> weird. I was like, okay, because remember how I was saying, I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was like ready for that or like, you know, you don't feel like you're perfect or whatever, but it was almost like this little confirmation that I just got from you <laughs> saying that being like, no, you were supposed to talk about that because now it's yeah. being brought up again, which is, oh, I love how so, crazy so wow. stuff happens like that. Um, but okay. So going back to that first experience with the polar bears, before we get into like the work that you're doing right now, cause there's mm-hmm. a lot that I want to uncover there. Um, what was that like for you to, cause this is your first time actually working in real life with these, you know, incredible animals and, um, watching their behaviors and doing all that kind of stuff and then turning that into your PhD. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what was that first experience like for you? Oh my goodness. I, I wish I 
could remember more of it. Um, again, it was the time of my life when I was really young and still, you know, in party university mode. Mm, and okay, so yeah. um, it was an interesting dynamic because I was working for this um, man running this project and he, his whole thing was he always really liked to test his students and test people. Mm-hmm. And so his mentality was like, okay, how far is this person willing to go? Like how much does she really want this? Mm-hmm. And can I actually have her on my team? And for me at that time, I viewed my work as like something that was, you know, again, my first real job. So I was like, don't fuck it up. Yeah. And so I was afraid to ask questions. I didn't want to like look weak. I wanted to, you know, pretend that I knew everything I was going to do and I could walk into it confidently. Um, So I didn't ask any questions and, you know, the only guidance or only thing that I knew was that we were going to stay in huts and that I had to go to the army surplus and tell the army surplus I was going to Nunavut and they would equip me and make sure that I had all the gear. Um, little, (laughs) that's it. That's all all I needed. And like, at the same time, you know, again, I was young. So up until this point in my life, like I had never really struggled. I had never really met any challenge. And so to me, I was very naive and just didn't really expect anything. Um, and I still remember like at the time I had like hot pink hair and I had all these piercings on my face and I like got off the plane and all of these Inuit kids were just like staring at me like, who are you? And like, why do you look like this? Wow. Um, and so that was the first thing, like, you know, going into town and everywhere I went, these kids would just like run right up to me and like grab my hand or like grab my jacket and just be like, who are you? Where are you from? And this was before these Northern communities had Facebook or even really internet. Yeah. And so people were just like, what are you doing here? And why are you here? Wow. Um, and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like I wasn't <laughs> really asking questions. I was like busy taking pictures with my new digital camera at the time and trying to like capture this bizarre place I was in. Um, but I remember, you know, we were traveling to our first campsite and um this Inuit man, George, he was taking me. And so the way that we drove was um, the Inuit who were hired as guides at the time for this project, they would be driving the snowmobile Mm -hmm. and the sled with all of the gear that included um, equipment to monitor the polar bears that we were using um, were all tied to the sleds. And we would be sitting on top of the sleds, holding onto the ropes and driving across the tundra and the ice um, traveling this way. And so when I first got on the sled, I was like, this is amazing. It's beautiful. Like the scenery, it's just like all white. And the sun was, you know, starting to set. And I remember it was this really, really pink color. And all I could see was George on his skidoo, just like in front of me driving. And he, he wore these seal pants. I remember like thinking and giggling to myself, like he looked like he was a seal driving. Yeah. Um, And that was like the first two hours, three hours, four hours, Six, seven, eight hours in, I started to lose my mind. Yeah. (laughs) What? I was like, where are we going and how long are we doing this for? And it was like slowly, quickly, I started to realize like I didn't have proper clothes. So I was feeling cold and I was feeling real cold for the first time. Yeah. Like Toronto cold, you know, you're not outside for a long time. You know, if you're skiing or you're doing like, winter walks like you're not outside for that long and so I started to experience what was like 
cold for the first time. And I remember that feeling. And I remember looking at like every hole that was being exposed in my jacket and even the zipper, I could feel the wind going in through my jacket, through the zipper. And like, I started to freak out and I started to like panic. And I was, I had my goggles on and something that I didn't anticipate either was that through ski goggles, it started to fog. So I couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. And every time I took my goggles off to like, you know, wipe or, you know, you breathe on it with your breath to wipe the, the frost off, it would only create more frost because my breath was creating more moisture and it would just thicken the ice on my goggles. So I was basically riding on the sled blind, couldn't really see anything really, really cold, felt nauseous because I was inhaling the fumes from the back of the snowmobile. Um, and yeah, I started to cry and I was like, it, it hit me that it was the first real experience that I had ever had where I couldn't just snap my fingers and say, I don't want to do this anymore because we are already six hours in. So it would be another six hours to turn around and go home. But also, am I going to burden everybody on the team by being that person that wants to turn around and go home? Um, And so, yeah, we just kind of had to like stick it through and we ended up getting lost. And yeah, it was, it was really traumatic. (laughs) Um, But when we got to the first campsite and it was, it wasn't even the destination that we were supposed to go to. It was just the closest camp that we could get to so that we could sleep over and then continue our trek the next day because we were so behind. Um, It was a place called Port Perry and there were these two wooden boxes. So when I thought of huts and cabins, I'm thinking like Northern Ontario cottage country cabins, (laughs) which is what cabin meant to me. And when I got there, it was like these small plywood boxes that you basically have to dig out when you arrive. And then you have to like rebuild in case there was a bear or foxes that have like shat and peed everywhere. And that's where we slept. And I remember unrolling my sleeping bag and just being in there. And like I was facing the wall and there was just like this frozen block of like fox poo that was (gasps) in there. And I was just like... Like, I'm so cold and I'm exhausted and, like, you just have to make do. And, yeah, that's another thing. You know, you expect when you roll up to a cabin that it's going to be warm. You open the door and it's going to be warm. It's just this cold, empty box that you yourself have to heat. So after we finish digging it up, digging it out, um, going inside, you know, we bring our – we had – we were using these Coleman stoves, like gas stoves. Mm -hmm. You know, we we turned that off. Like, we we lit it up and we had the heat – the fire from the stove you going to, to heat that little hut up. Um, and that was, yeah, that was my first trip. And then we were out there for a month and I remember every single day I was just like, how much longer do I have to be doing this? Cause I just want to go home. Um, but also at the same time, not really ready to like speak and say I wanted to quit because I couldn't really go anywhere. There was nowhere to go. I'm in Nunavut, you yeah. know, like I go back to the community. Where am I going to stay? Um, we're here. Um, and so I like really pushed through. And then it was actually when I got home from the trip and I was relieved that I could finally leave and get back to comfort that I realized I am not the same person. That, that yeah. month changed me. That is (laughs) the most wild story because so many people don't have those experiences. And at the same time, 
these people that live in those communities, that is their daily lives. Like that's how, that's their experience all the time. And, you know, a lot of them, and I, and I don't want to assume anything, but don't know a different kind of living than, you know what I mean? The one that they're, they're used to, but Mm -hmm. we're so used to, like you said, the comforts and like expecting certain things and everything like that. And then when you go to a place where all of that is taken away, um, but at the same time, like you said, you were really changed by that experience. What was it about that experience that really enlightened you and made you want to continue to do that work? Like, what was that change for you? Yeah, it's it's hard to say because, again, it was the time in my life where I was young. So I wasn't mm-hmm. really quite you know, I didn't have my like self-awareness practices in place yet. So I wasn't necessarily present. Um, but there were, so George, the man that was driving me, we had a few interactions on the land and he, he would teach me about certain things. And it was actually the first time that I witnessed a seal hunt and it, it it traumatized me. Like I have it on video somewhere on my old digital camera where we're driving up to the seal because we had to we had to hunt seal in order to get bait to attract the polar bears for this survey. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm watching George and we're approaching this seal and I'm like, yes, seal hunt. Yeah, like, you know, shoot it. And I, I have this video and he pulls out his rifle and he shoots the seal and we drive up to the seal to retrieve it, like to pull it out of the seal hole and immediately I, my face just dropped and I started crying. Like it was the first time that I saw this animal. The first time I saw any animal that I was going to watch die. Mm. Um, And it actually created this distance because, you know, I was really sad. I turned around and I just started walking into the tundra sobbing. Mm. And George's reaction was like, you don't just walk off into the tundra. Like he just started yelling. He was just like, there are bears around. This is unsafe. You don't just, you know, throw this dramatic tantrum, but also this is my life. Don't like, I am not a monster. This is part of my life. This is who I am. And those were all reactions that I absolutely did not anticipate or expect. Um, So it created this conflict and I was really nervous because I had to spend the next months driving around with this man that I realized you know, he was mirroring back a lot of aspects of what I realized was our material culture, mm. things that we take for granted, that we go to the store and get our food, that we've never had to kill an animal. We've never had to kill our own food. Um, and so, you know, over the course of the month, I started to spend more time with him and he started to teach me more about the land. Um, you know, slowly he would, I remember the first words that he said to me after that awkward interaction with the seal was, um, in Inuktitut, he said Malatuk, and he like wrote it down in the snow, which meant sick seal. Actually, I don't even remember if that's the proper term, but he said something in Inuktitut that meant sick mm-hmm. seal. And from then, that's sort of how he would teach me things. Like we would drive around and he would just be like, when the ice looks like this, there are bears. And mm. slowly he just started showing me things. Um, and when I got home... I don't even really know why I couldn't explain why, but all I wanted to do was go back up North. So the next year when we were doing the trip again, I was like, yes, of course. Like there wasn't even a question I would do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
each year, each iteration of that field work that we did, um, of course, I got more and more used to being out on the land. So I had, you know, my proper gear. Um, also, I, I realized that nothing man-made um, could actually keep me warm. So, you know, moving forward, when I got to the community, the first thing I would always do is look for a pair of caribou skin boots, look for anyone that's willing to lend me caribou pants or a parka or caribou hide to sleep on, because those are really the only things that keep you warm. Wow. It doesn't matter, like, how much goose down you have in your jacket. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, I think hide, like animal hide, yeah. is really the thing that keeps you warm. Wow. That is so incredible that you were able to get so much from that experience and then not only come back but say I want to go back again and learn Mm -hmm. more and really back to that point of like your guides placing little markers for you Mm -hmm. that this is really your work you know and something about why you came at this time to do this work and your specific gifts that enable you to do this work which is so beautiful because we're all needed in different ways you know so I love that you were just like totally game to be like I'm going back I'm gonna (laughs) keep doing this um and then that goes into the work that you're doing now so if you want to talk about the kind of work that you're doing now Mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's very much linked to that whole experience so um I had started off again doing this polar bear um, genetic survey and I was spending a lot of time with the hunters, but I also became more and more fascinated with how the hunters were interpreting the polar bear tracks. Mm. So while we were collecting the genetic hair samples, which is what we were up there for, we were setting up these traps that bears would walk in. Um, The traps were baited with seal meat and they had barbed wire fencing and the barbed wire fencing would snag the polar bear hair. We would take the polar bear hair, bring it back to the lab and figure out, you know, who the individuals were and what sex they were. And that's that was how we were surveying them. Um, But my work up there became more about the hunters looking at the polar bear tracks of or sorry, the tracks of the polar bears leaving behind the hair sample. So we would collect the hair sample and a person on my team would go back to the lab and be able to determine if it was a male or female or how big it was or how old it was. And my job there was to ask the hunters, okay, looking at these footprints, can you tell me like, what, what do you know about this bear? Mm -hmm. And they would talk about, you know, oh, this was the mom and cub that had been actually following our tracks for 10 days Or they would say, you know, this was a male that came in. You could tell from the footprints because males walk like this or their their feet are more square or they would describe these different characteristics. Um, And that project um, was pivotal at the time because back in 2008, 2010, that time frame, polar bears were really popular in social media as a symbol for climate change. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of pressure to protect the polar bear from, from hunting and harvesting. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, Inuit were really feeling like their hunting and access to polar bear hunting was um, restricted in an unfair way because in their view, there were lots of polar bears. Right. And then at the same time, you had other polar bear biologists that were claiming that there weren't a lot of polar bears because they were um, 
populations were declining because of climate change. Mm -hmm. So in that landscape, what was happening was there was a lot of debate basically between Inuit people and biologists or Southern people that were climate change activists. Um, so what I tried to do in that work was to compare scientific information from biologists that were looking at hair samples yeah. and what the Inuit were talking about in the tracks and comparing the two and actually ended up approaching a psychology professor to figure out how to do this. And we were able to demonstrate that Inuit were actually statistically like correct or what they were wow. saying was, I mean, if we define correctness or accuracy as um, science, um, what they were saying was actually in alignment with what was coming out from the biological, biological perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I had always been interested in how to bridge these two worldviews, Mm. which is biology and Inuit knowledge. Um, and that ended up continuing on to my PhD Um, But when I finished my PhD and something that I pointed to earlier, um, I I was met with this question, did I always want to do this or am I meant to be doing something else? Mm. And so, you know, a lot of it was guided through ayahuasca ceremonies Mm. and an endless search for self and and going into doing self-work and trying to examine what it is that I really wanted to do. Mm. Um, And all of that actually led me to um, do something that was completely opposite. Um, I ended up contacting, um, the Royal Botanic Gardens in London, UK. Um, and a a guy there that was working there with, um, indigenous people in the jungles of New Guinea. And he was working on an ethnobotany program, which was recording how people in the jungle were using medicines and Mm -hmm. what their traditional knowledge of medicinal plants was and ways to conserve those plants from a biological or ecological perspective. Mm. So my, like, I guess, experience career-wise was really fit to be able to be, to transfer to this new context. Um, But also because I had been working with plant medicines, I really felt the call of the jungle. Mm. So off to New Guinea I went. Um, and I spent only two months there trying to get this project started. Um, and we ended up going to the Grassberg mine, which is, I think the world's second largest copper mine, which is in, um, the jungle. Um, and we actually were, it's, it's a long story, but we were taken up to the top of this mine and to the, the open pit And it was the first time that I ever actually experienced or encountered mining Mm -hmm. and the impacts of mining on indigenous people and culture. And like, there was a lot of information that I got there. Um, But I remember standing at the top of the mine and it was really uncomfortable um, because there was high altitude sickness, but we also had to go through the jungle and figure out all these ways to get there, um, ways to contact local people to be able to start this project. Um, We didn't speak the local language, which is different from Indonesian, which is actually the national language. Um, But also there was tons of mosquitoes and malaria was really, really common. Like people would show up late to meetings because, you know, their kids were at the hospital with malaria or something. Um, So there was a lot of stuff happening. And I remember in that experience, um, I just... It wasn't like the North where 
I could be lost on the tundra mm-hmm. on the back of a skidoo. And even though it was really hard, I would just keep going back. Mm-hmm. In New Guinea, it was hard <laughs> and I just had no desire to be there. Wow. Even though it was really beautiful and it was tropical yeah. and I got to fly through Bali and all of those things on paper, it looked like it would be something that I wanted to do, but I, I couldn't push through it. And it's actually really ironic or not, maybe not, but I ended up, I ended that New Guinea trip with a conference in Germany on tracks because they, the people there had seen my work and they had invited me and they invited me to invite an Inuit person to come to Germany. Mm-hmm. And the person I brought was George. <laughs> you brought George. <laughs> so after my New Guinea trip, um, Your cat are getting acquainted. I know. <laughs> he's really, he's really interested he's in this so in this whole exercise. <laughs> um, but I ended up meeting George at this conference and presenting the northern work that I thought I was done with at this conference yeah. with George and experiencing city life and like you know our roles completely flipped. Like he would take me around on the land, and now I was taking him around on subway trains and. Yeah you know, looking at different sites and traveling in mega buses, stuff that he had never done before. Yeah. Um, and at the end of that trip, I got really, really emotional in front of like the whole conference because I was just talking to George and all I thought I was, I just thought I was just going to say goodbye to him before boarding yeah. my plane. But it hit me that I didn't know if I would ever see him again and that I also really missed working up north with him and working up north in general. Wow. And a lot of it had to do with the way that he carried himself in this different context and city. And I could see how his culture and the way that he was raised, um, even though he was in a completely different place, still permeated his being and his way of mm. being in a different place. And there was something in there that I really wanted to protect and preserve, which was a traditional way of being and seeing the world. So as an example, you know, everywhere we went um, in Germany, every time we saw a homeless person, he would pull out his wallet and pull out his entire per diem, which was, I think, 120 bucks. And he would just pop it in the cup of the homeless person. And I was like, George, you don't have to pay them all your money. And he was like, yeah, but I'm getting paid to be here by these conference organizers. And this guy definitely needs the money more than I do. Like he didn't say that, but that was, I could see that's how that was his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and that just brought me back to a lot of principles that Inuit elders had taught me in our conversations, which was, in these small communities, and this is also linked back to what we started with, but in these small communities, when you encounter someone that needs help, you help them. Like you don't, mm. it's, it's, it's a no brainer. It's yeah. so ingrained in your way of being that you just drop everything and you help. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, wow. I guess. And that's what brought you back Yeah. <laughs> to none of it. I love that. I think it's such a beautiful story and connection and you going to see you know, a lot of that signifies that it's not just about the work. Like the work is like really important to you and clearly your, your passion and your skill, but it's something about the land. It's something about that specific area that keeps calling you. And I think 
there is that connection that we have to certain places Mm -hmm. that our hearts are like so tied to. And sometimes we're like, we don't even know why, but it's calling us there for a reason. And it sounds like that is that connection for you to this specific land. And then that, that beautiful idea of you wanting to be that conduit and that person that can help preserve because you are that bridge. You're the bridge from from both worlds, you know, mm-hmm. coming from the, you know, uh, living in, you know, Toronto and this kind of like culture and the city and biology and all that kind of stuff. But then going into this other land that you have so much experience with now, you are that bridge between the two worlds. And that's what you're doing for your work is like bridging the knowledge of like what, you know, scientists and other people think is, you know, really going on, but then you get to see this other lens of what the Inuit communities are really experiencing on like a firsthand basis. And how do we, do you think that it's like that connection that really holds a lot of the answers to the things that you are working on? Or what do you think it is that, um, is really making the biggest impact, I would Mm. say? Yeah. I mean, do you mean impact on myself? Or um, on the community and like the work that you're doing specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of like the work that I'm trying to do now is, um, you know, rather than going into a community and say, oh, this is what they want, this is what they need, this is how we can preserve things for them. Yeah. Um, I've sort of, you know, moved towards an approach where I just show up and I just, you know, remind communities I'm here to work for you and so whatever this is what this is what me and my consulting team or my company does and these are our skill sets but what do you need and how can I help and Mm. do you even want my help and sometimes it's challenging like I've been to communities where you know I felt like there was so much going on that you know working with me wasn't their priority because there were other things happening um and in those moments, it's just like, okay, like, you know, if that's, if that's not what they want to do, then, mm-hmm. you know, stepping away. Um, and yeah, even in like the research or especially with the Northern, um, the Arctic research or work worlds, um, things are definitely moving towards a community like centered approach where mm-hmm. Things, initiatives that occur with Inuit communities are actually driven by Inuit communities and not mm. by, you know, outsiders or non-Inuit or people from other cultures that are like, this is what the communities want. And so we're going to go in there, guns ablaze and, right, you know, right. do all this amazing work to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, like, what exactly is going to be the most impactful because mm. it depends on who... Um, is the person making that judgment. Mm. And at the end of the day, I would, I would like to say that it's the communities that are looking and seeing, you know, where the impacts are and why. That's amazing. Have in your time there, have you seen the effects of our, our climate changing and all that kind of stuff? Is there a lot of conversations around that? Because I know that you were saying before, um, especially when you were doing the research on the polar bears and that was like, kind of like a whole, you know, symbol of, uh, the climate change movement and everything like that. Have you seen, um, the actual physical effects within that region while you've been there? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, 
I haven't spent enough time up north to be able to, or I haven't spent enough time on the land, mm-hmm. and I don't really know the land enough to be able to detect those changes right, and right. see them. Um, but from you know a scientific level, I've seen multi-year ice data and how ice patterns like freeze up and thaw every year has shifted at least or at least approximately by a month Mm -hmm. and like when I look at that data I'm like it's undeniable that there's changes and whether or not that trend is you know part of the normal long historical Mm -hmm. span or cycle of ice changes or not I don't really know I'm not the expert Um, but also just being around community members, like I've definitely spoken to elders that say, you know, this used to be open water and, or actually the opposite, sorry, this used to be ice and now it's open water. And now, you know, certain areas are no longer as accessible or traveling on the land is no longer as reliable because things used to be much more predictable. Um, and because you know, climate change, no one really knows where it's going or what the trajectory is. It's, it's harder to plan. And that becomes more important when it comes to accessing traditional hunting areas or even right. being able to predict when animals are going to be moving through, like they're also responding and changing. Right. Um, so there's definitely a lot of discussions that have been happening up north mm-hmm. about those things. Um, but it's hard to say, yeah. you know, what's going to happen and who really knows. Yeah, and I guess um, the the hunting and the, their traditional practices is really how their livelihood and like how they you know survive within that landscape. So it is a big part of you know I guess their initial dialogue. Is that w- what you would say? Like it's really um, I guess a concern for the people that are living in those you know, farther away communities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it is for the whole world. Let's just, <laughs> let's just put it out there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. in Canada, it's an interesting one because um, a lot of the work we do is, you know, evaluating impacts of climate change, but not just climate change, but how climate change interacts with other changes like increased mining and development Mm -hmm. in in the north or even in Canada in general. And what it always comes back to is how those changes are impacting Indigenous communities Mm -hmm. and their ability to continue to exercise their rights, which are their traditional rights and their practices, um, impacts to their ability to continue going to certain areas on the land Mm -hmm. and how, how that's being affected. And that actually... Um, starts to move into um, a a more legal approach Mm -hmm. um, because there are, you know, certain precedents and uh, cases that have um, occurred in the history of Canadian Aboriginal law Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, impacts to Indigenous rights have taken place, um, especially within a a land use context or their ability to exercise their traditional practices. Um, So that's becoming more and more relevant now as well. So there's so much. I mean, (laughs) there's so many things that we can um, dive into, but I just like this whole conversation has been really beautiful because it really goes back to, I guess, kind of the theme that I was saying in the beginning about sacred land, sacred communities, and your experiencing experiences within 
um, all those communities. And before I get into my whole, uh, I call it uh, cosmic pings. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a little bit of like a quick answer. You don't have to be quick, but um, the one thing I do want to tie it all together is how do you cultivate and um, align with your own community? because I know that you have such a beautiful friend group and community, especially we're talking about in Costa Rica in the beginning. It's how, how do you, how did you cultivate that over the years? Um, what is, what are your friendships and that whole community mean to you? And what does that like tie between you all? Hmm. It's amazing that you're asking this because, um, you know, two of my friends went down to Costa Rica and they've been there for the last, I think maybe two months now. And I recently saw them last week and was able to see, you know, what they've been up to and where they have been. And there were many, many moments where we just kept saying how grateful we were for each other and the community that we had created, because it's a really, really strange coincidence, but we all sort of came together and very intensely hung out like all the time, like almost every week we would do everything together. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the same time, this fall, we all dispersed. You know, I had a friend that went off to Thailand to do her thing, another friend that's traveling in the States right now, and then these two in Costa Rica, like we all kind of went away. And one thing that we keep coming back to is how in our relationships, we've always honored our need to be independent and to pursue what we actually want on more personal levels. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a really interesting and unique community I find, um, which is actually teaching me a lot about what I value in relationship, which is the ability to, to maintain connections and relationship with people, but at the same time, allowing them to be free, Mm. you know, and it's this, it, you know, it, it seems like, you know, to connect and be in relationship with someone means that freedom is being, you know, is the cost, but Um, In these cases, I don't think it is at all. Wow. I love that. That kind of like ties it all together. Mm -hmm. Like loving someone, also allowing them to be free at the same time. And then them doing the same for you and just kind of going along that dance together. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I want it's a little bit off topic, but it kept coming up again in Costa Rica as well. A friend of mine mentioned, but, and maybe it's an oversimplification, But in the lessons that we were discussing about relationship, he kept saying, um, women just want to feel loved and men just want to be free. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if we look at the archetypal like Shiv and Shakti Mm -hmm. or masculine feminine, I'm like, yeah, totally. Men just want to be reminded that they're free and women just want to be reminded that they're loved. And there's that balance between the two, even within self, you know. Because you need both at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful because then that makes that beautiful union if you know how to use that balance Mm -hmm. and balance both of those energies Mm -hmm. amazing okay (laughs) um we didn't even get into how we were both in Sedona at the same time (laughs) but never actually met each other there (laughs) we'll save that for another podcast (laughs) okay so um these are my cosmic pings so just Mm -hmm. finish the question when I answer ask it a place you traveled to that was a really sacred journey arctic bay amazing Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm like i probably knew about this okay um your favorite thing to do when you're in Nunavut in Nunavut Mm -hmm. 
Mm, probably go on the back of a skidoo or ATV and drive around on the land. For hours. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What is your favorite scent? Favorite scent? Florida water, which I can show you afterwards. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know the scent. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, what, what did I write? Oh, a moment that you felt really connected to the divine. Ooh, I guess, hmm, if I could think of like the most recent, it was in the middle of a party that I was feeling really flustered Mm. um, in Costa Rica and I left without really saying anything to anyone and just went straight to the ocean and it was Mm. at night, pitch darkness, um, and I stood in the ocean and I don't know what came over me. I just, I started sobbing and I could still can't tell you what or why. Um, but I just started calling in my guides like instinctually yeah. and just vocalized it. And um, I have this internal sundial with all the elements. So I just called them all in the grandfathers or grandmothers. And as soon as that happened, there was a piece of driftwood that just sort of like hit up against my leg. And I just picked it up and walked over to the nearest uh, bonfire on the beach that this small Costa Rican family was having. And I just put the piece of wood on this fire and just kind of stood there. And I was like, I can't, I can't believe this is happening right now. It was just like, you know, motions moving through me. And there was something about being connected to all the elements that I was like, there's something higher and bigger than me that's here right now. Wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Full body goosebumps. That's crazy. Um, A book that really affected you was? Ooh, there's so many. They're all on my shelf right there. (laughs) I can see some of them. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, I haven't really done much reading recently because I've been really busy. Um, There's this one book. She's going to look for the book. <laughs> Loliad Archon. Oh. Yeah. It? It's it's written by this like nerdy physicist. Um, but it's a fiction about this society that resembles Atlantis. I don't actually remember if they use the words Atlantis, but um, there's two men. They're like best friends and one is about to embark on a journey and he's taking a companion with him and they're describing the society that they're leaving behind, which involves a lot of like scientific testing and, and experiments, but also, um, changes of the mind that take place in those experiments. Um, and yeah, for a fictional book, it, it has a lot of, I guess, symbolism and points to a lot of things I think in our in our present day reality in life wow I need to check that one out (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think it's right up your alley yeah 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 um the universe is love amazing love is (laughs) one yes (laughs) thank you so much for this beautiful conversation I truly I feel honored to hear your stories because I know how um, amazing your journeys have been and all the knowledge that you carry within you, um, holding that as your vessel. So I just feel really privileged, honored 
to have this conversation with you and to hear those stories and to share that with this community because I think it's a really special, beautiful thing. So thank you. And thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to share and record this. I feel like I haven't actually recorded these stories, so I'm really grateful too. Now you'll have them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening.